We are acutely aware of the value of exercise in maintaining good health. But how do benefits of exercise and physical therapy apply specifically to patients who are coping with a disease or an illness? Are our patients receiving exercise and therapy guidance that is rigorous enough to improve healing? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. Marilyn Moffat, Professor of Physical Therapy at New York University. Dr. Moffat has been in private practice for more than 40 years. She is an accomplished author across a broad range of topics in physical therapy and an internationally respected voice in physical therapy. Welcome, Dr. Moffat. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure to be with you today. We are discussing exercise regimens for patients burdened by illness. Dr. Moffat, how does the value of exercise really translate to patients dealing with an illness? We have to realize in this day and age that the data are so strong supporting exercise for almost any condition that we can conceive of. I think there was a day when patients had heart conditions and they were left to rest in bed. Patients undergoing chemotherapeutic regimes for cancer were told to rest and relax. And now we know that the more one does in the way of exercise, regardless of what the diagnosis is or regardless of what the treatment is, the better they are going to be in the long run. How do you combine, though, necessary rest with certain illnesses and exercise? Don't they seem on opposite ends of the spectrum? If you just take plain old muscle strengthening, we know, for example, that in order to strengthen muscle, you have to tax that muscle, and you must overload it on a consistent basis. But you also have to give the muscle a day to rest in between, so it will get stronger in the long run. So you can easily combine the movement, the activity, with a little rest when appropriate. We know that certain diseases certainly bring fatigue and pain. Now, how does an exercising program in this patient affect specifically these conditions? I mean, do they just endure the pain, or does the exercise lessen the pain, or does the exercise distract from the pain? I think there are probably several answers to that question. Probably the easiest diagnosis to take, because it's probably one that so many people are confronting as we age in this day and age, is osteoarthritis. You know, the joints tend to degenerate as we get older, and again, as we're living longer and longer, the joints tend to degenerate a little bit more. But we also know that with exercise, you can definitely decrease pain, you can increase quality of life, you can increase muscle strength, you can increase one's overall quality of life. And there, again, are so many studies showing that the more exercise you do that's appropriate, again, the better off the body is going to be in terms of the osteoarthritic changes. Uh, that doesn't mean you push through pain. I mean, I think there's always the necessity of having appropriate guidance when you have a condition like osteoarthritis so that you learn when to do exercise of one sort when there is no pain, and yet you can progress to an isometric type of exercise when the joint is acutely inflamed or if it's unstable. Well, that's the key word you just said, appropriate. Who determines what is appropriate for that particular patient? and that particular illness? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that when one has a health-related condition, whether it's arthritis, whether it's osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, whether it's congestive heart failure, whatever it is, that the ideal combination of team to decide what kind of exercise is most appropriate is the physician and the physical therapist. 
we each know in our own way what are the domains that can be pushed with this kind of population. And again, the physical therapist's expertise in exercise prescription is what then enables the patient to go ahead and start an exercise program appropriately and then progress it appropriately. Are there any exercises that are specific to certain diseases? Well, it depends on the disease. For example, if you're working with cardiovascular or pulmonary problems, you certainly are looking for aerobic kinds of activities. However, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease also need major strengthening exercises because they get a lot of muscle wasting with their disease. On the other hand, if you have patients, again, with muscle weakness, as you often see in osteoarthritis, or, again, patients with low bone mass, as you see in patients with, again, osteopenia, osteoporosis, they need very solid strengthening exercises, and in the case of osteoporosis, a lot of weight-bearing exercise. How is age a factor in terms of exercise with certain diseases? Well, as I always say, you're never too old to exercise. I mean, I think, again, the studies show that individuals in their 90s and individuals in their 100s can benefit from exercise in a very, very major way. We've shown through the literature that if you exercise when you're 100 and above, you're still going to be able to significantly increase your muscle strength, and you're going to be able to increase your walking ability and increase your balance through exercise. So the aging process is not one that should ever, ever deter one from exercising. You know, it wasn't too terribly long ago that when patients, let's say, had a myocardial infarction, they'd be in bed for six weeks. What was it that made it change? Well, I think what happened is as we learn more and more about the physiology of a heart attack and more and more about the physiology of the functioning of the heart, and as new testing devices were developed, we realized that we didn't have to keep these patients in bed. And I can relate to this so strongly because my early physical therapy practice was in the cardiac area, and I worked in the ICUs during a lot of the very early cardiac surgery days. And indeed, the patient who had a heart attack laid flat on their back for six weeks. And then all of a sudden, we realized that six weeks of bed rest not only, again, weakened them, caused a lot of muscle loss, and then trying to get them up and rehabilitated just was so much harder. Whereas now we know that placing the appropriate amount of stress on that heart and, again, keeping them active gets them out and functioning so much faster. Well, just how often should a patient exercise? I mean, should it be every day? Should it be once a week? How often? Well, it depends, again, on what the type of activity is. I mean, there are very specific guidelines that are out there nowadays for all different parameters of exercise. And as you know, in my book, I have put forth what I consider the five parameters of fitness, and that's posture and strength and flexibility and balance and endurance. And so for each of those, there basically is a different sort of guideline that one utilizes for exercising. So if I'm looking at aerobic exercise, for the most part, I am looking at five to seven days a week for aerobic activity. And I think, again, most all of the studies are showing that five to seven days is really what's necessary. Could you get away with three? Probably. But, again, five to seven is more appropriate. If you're looking at strengthening exercises, again, once you've developed your initial strength, in the, after the first couple of months of strengthening, then you're going to probably do strengthening exercises three times a week with an alternate day in between. If you're looking at flexibility, I like to do flexibility almost a little bit every day of the week if you can do it. Try to work it in with your other daily activities. 
the same thing with balance. I mean, I train for a lot of balance activities because, as we know, falls are probably the most expensive thing that we confront in this day and age in terms of healthcare costs. So that I like to incorporate balance activity on a daily basis in with my other activities. I may do it while I'm brushing my teeth. I may do it while I'm walking down the hall or, again, whenever I can keep it there. And posture, again, all day long as much as we can because I hate to see those rounded spines and that forward head as we get older. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Marilyn Moffat, professor of physical therapy at New York University and an internationally respected expert in physical therapy. We're discussing exercise regimens for patients burdened by illness. Dr. Moffat, in a New York Times article, you were quoted to say that in certain areas, the therapy that patients received is not intensive enough. What did you mean by that, and why is that the case? A lot of that has to do with the fact that the numbers of visits we often get with patients in this day and age, as you know, are limited by other agencies other than our own health professionals' decision. So we often don't have the time to get the patients to the next step that we should. But I think that we have got to realize that in all of our patients, we have got to think about the long-term effects of any kind of disease and disorder, and therefore we have got to get them to their maximum capability. And that means we've got to employ that what we call the physical stress theory, and we've got to overload. We've got to make exercises specific. We've got to sort of be totally aware of that use-it-or-lose-it kind of philosophy. What is that physical stress theory? Physical stress theory just states that we must overload the body part in order for it to be able to get better. And exercises should be specific to what we're doing as well. There are other facets of overload in terms of, you know, looking at fatigue and how much you can push to fatigue. But the big concept of the physical stress theory is the overload principle. So if you're going to get better, you've got to overload it. And that doesn't make any difference if it's aerobic activity. For you to do more, you've got to overload. And it could be something as simple as increasing your distance that you're walking or jogging or running. Or it could be, again, in putting some hills into what you're doing. Looking at strengths, it could mean increasing your weights or increasing your reps. Um, again, to overload. Or you could do combined activities. I like to do stair climbing with some weights, so I get a little bit of both while I'm doing my stair climbing. Are there any particular areas where this assessment specifically applies, let's say total knee or hip replacements or things like that? The studies are really pretty strong in terms of total hips and total knees. Again, we often tend to have such limited visits when we see these patients. And what we do know, again, is that With total hip replacements, when you look at high-intensity strength training and you look at, again, things as it relates to, again, aerobic and strength training, that strength gets so much better, their gait speed increases, their stair climbing ability increases, the ability to sit to stand increases over a standard rehab. And that means, you know, they get to the standard rehab, but they have to be pushed beyond that point. And I often think that, again, because of the setup of the reimbursement systems now, that we don't get our patients to that level. So we've got to begin to think of getting them over the initial rehab when all the precautions are lifted and everything else is out of the way, then getting them into at least a low-intensity or preferably a high-intensity program, which, again, gets them to their maximum level of functioning. 
I know when I see a, a patient who's had a total hip replacement six, seven months after their hip has been replaced, I can test that whole chain on that side, whether it's the hip or the knee or the ankle, and you'll see diminution of strength in the whole chain because it hasn't been pushed to its maximum in strengthening, again, after the initial rehab process has taken place. And the same thing holds true with total knee replacements as well. I mean, we even know that three years after a total knee, they, they still can have deficits in their quadriceps. And again, that kind of alteration in quadriceps strength, we should have taken care of by a much more intense program, again, after the initial rehab process. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Marilyn Moffat. We've been discussing exercise regimens for patients burdened by illness. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. And you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.